right. Don't leave. Don't leave. This one, this one's going to be good. The last one was incredible. This will also be incredible. Okay, raise your hand if you know about Terra, if you've heard about Terra. Yeah, cheering. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you want to come on stage. Um, <laughs> all right. So with me now, um, I have a person um, who months ago, as I was, you know, as a DeFi reporter just looking into things, I was looking into Terra, I was like, okay, who has interesting thoughts on this thing that is clearly very interesting? Um, Kevin here, Kevin Joe of Gawa Capital. Um, was one person um, who came up pretty clearly, um, pretty immediately, based on the people I was talking to. Kevin here shorted UST, um, shorted Terra, shorted Luna. You'll explain the mechanics of that. But he was predicting the collapse of this ecosystem well before it actually happened. So the quick summary that I'll give before I'll you know, hand most of this over to Kevin here is, um, if you don't know, UST, Luna, um, UST was a stable coin. It was supposed to be $1.00. At a certain point, it wasn't. When it dropped down, it and its sister token both collapsed to zero, basically, um, you know, losing $40 billion, depending on how you measure this, in paper value. Um, it was a huge thing that might have had ripple effects throughout all of finance and decentralized finance and crypto. It's fascinating. It's going to invite the regulatory eye. But anyway, excited again to introduce Kevin Zhou of Gawa Capital to talk us through you know, what happened. So welcome, Kevin. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, and thank you all for, uh, for joining us for this. Um, I guess maybe uh, just to start, I mean, should we talk a little bit about how it works, or should we already assume some kind of baseline understanding of, yeah. uh, of Terra? There? Yeah, let's assume you all know what DeFi is. But um, Kevin, if you could give a bit of an overview on how mm -hmm. UST was supposed to work with Luna, just a brief. Um, yeah. and then we'll get so, so the idea is that there's this ba basic mechanism where uh, Luna is this L1 uh, token, and uh, you can burn this Luna. You can burn X amount of dollars worth of this Luna to get X amount of uh, UST. So that's how basically the stablecoin UST uh, is created. Um, and vice versa, you can also burn some number of dollars of UST and get the equivalent in dollars worth of Luna. So, you know, all, all, obviously all of this depends on the value of Luna, how much you're actually getting, um, you know, when you're burning Luna, uh, Luna you're burning, or how much Luna you're getting back. Uh, but the UST should always be worth uh, $1. And uh, effectively, this mechanism, you know, it's been tried uh, in the past with um, Titan and Iron. Uh, you know, it's been tried in variance with, you know, some of these other algo stablecoin designs, uh, like the, you know, seniorage type uh, algo stablecoins, like, uh, you know, Basis, you know, Basis Cash, Yams, um, all of these other ones, uh, ESD, DSD, uh, to some extent, Ohm and Time and all the Ohm forks, too. So, you know, I think um, this was, in, in my opinion, very similar to that. Uh, and, uh, you know, ultimately it didn't work out. And it, it's a bit unfortunate. I think a lot of people lost a lot of money uh, and condolences out to those people. But, uh, you know, what I was trying to do is, you know, at least publicly since January, um, up until the, the collapse, I've been trying to warn people about this. And, uh, you know, I thought that the protocol was highly insolvent uh, by uh, high single digit billions. And I think that really, um, there was a masking of this problem um, that because of the huge supply sink on Anchor, which is the lending and borrowing uh, protocol uh, on, on So I think that's really um, something that kind of hid the problem, but the problem had always existed, and this insolvency had built up over maybe a year, maybe two years, something like that. Can you talk just really quickly a little bit more about Anchor, like that 20%? What exactly yeah. did you notice that you know, raised alarm bells at first? 
Uh, yeah, so the, the idea behind Anchor is that um, they wanted to subsidize people for using uh, both that platform and also TerraChain in general uh, by giving out uh, quote unquote unsustainable um, yields on deposits. So at the time the yields were 19.5% uh, and I think eventually fell to maybe 18% uh, percent, uh, you know, before things collapsed. Uh, but the idea is that if you're paying out depositors on a borrower lending pro uh, protocol more than you're collecting from, uh, from borrowers, uh, then there's some kind of mismatch there and somebody has to pay for it. So effectively uh, they were spending their own money um, you know, to top up the anchor reserve, which was then paying for the shortfall uh, in, in the difference in the interest rates. Um, so, you know, that's something that in the long term is not sustainable, but, you know, from their perspective, they wanted to spend that money as a marketing cost uh, to, you know, attract people to the platform. Uh, that kind of makes sense. I think they overpaid for it a little bit. I think they probably um, could have made it more of a dynamic rate. Um, you know, just really when you're looking at the capital that's flowing around in the DeFi space, um, at different points in time, different pools become attractive. And when the market is kind of in a bear market, uh, everybody's interest rates are generally lower. So probably they can have a dynamic like adjusting model where, you know, they could have paid more when there was more competition. They could pay less when there was less competition. But in any case, as long as the deposit rate is higher than the borrow rate, uh, they're going to have to subsidize that from somewhere. And, you know, generally they paid for it from their own coffers. Um, and eventually, you know, they were going to either run out of money or they're going to have to lower the interest rate, which is what they eventually tried to do and started doing uh, before the collapse happened. So, so you're explaining a system sort of similar to like an early Uber is kind of how I've talked about it. A little different, um, you know, in a financial context and in a crypto context, but basically where they were paying, they were basically doing marketing spend um, yes. to get people to hold these tokens in a vault with the promise of 20%, maybe a little less over time a year in return. But yep. once that 20%, which is essentially paid by investor money, runs out, then people are going to have to find something else to do with those tokens. Um, does that kind of, and, and, you know, did users find anything else to do with those tokens? Were there any other applications in your view? Or, you know, what should they have done that they didn't do in order to keep the system solvent? Uh, what, what I would say is that there are some other uses, you know, for this L1. There's a whole bunch of other projects on, on Terra. But I would say that the um, supply sync on UST for all of these other projects combined was probably less than one billion. While you compare that to Anchor, it was like, you know, low teens, high teens, uh, you know, usage of, of uh, UST and a supply sync. So, I mean, these are just orders of magnitude different. Um, you know, what I would say is that, you know, in the most optimistic view and most generous view, um, this was a marketing spend. They were trying to build out, you know, multiple-sided market. Um, you know, initially, nobody wants to use a platform that nobody else is using. So in order to bootstrap, uh, they're willing to spend, spend VC money to do so. The more cynical view would be that this is just another, um, you know, system in which basically VC is given investment to, a, to a, a protocol, which then pays money for yield farmers for good optics as if their chain was being used, which then provides exit liquidity for the VCs. So it's a giant circle of uh, basically figuring out ways of just creating money uh, for investors and for themselves. Um, so, you know, probably the truth is somewhere in between those two views. Uh, but nevertheless, outside of motive, what I would say is that uh, regardless of whether it was well-intentioned or, or ill-intentioned, um, still the design itself was very flawed. And I think that's really, uh, I think the real key point here is that, you know, this, this thing wasn't just insolvent by a little bit. It was, in my opinion, insolvent by maybe about seven to eight billion, maybe even nine billion. So very high single-digit billions, and, and that's a lot of insolvent. And this is, you know, for, for us, um, when we uh, decided to 
uh, put on this short, it wasn't so much um, you know building a very advanced quant model and doing complicated mathematics. I mean, a lot of this was just very simple back of the napkin math and just adding up, okay, so like how much liquidity is in the Bitcoin reserve? How much liquidity is in the curve pools? How much liquidity is on Binance? You know, adding all that up. And even if we were wrong with our estimates by uh, pretty large factors, I mean, the insolvency was so big that, you know, it was probably good by a lot, you know? So and that's, that's one of the reasons that decided to short. So there's, um, you know, two big groups that lost money here. Um, one is the retail investors. Um, and you talk about how it's a sad story. I, I mean, obviously, it's sad to lose money. Some people committed suicide. There's confirmed reports of that. It's, it's, it's a serious story when people yeah. think something is worth a dollar, um, and then it goes to zero. So that's one side that lost money. Another side that lost money was all the institutional and professional investors, like the investor class. Um, people put, you know, millions upon millions of dollars into this, and you talk about how it was actually pretty, it was a simple calculus on your end to realize that this thing, um, in your view, was going to collapse. So I'm curious, now everybody is saying in hindsight, you know, this thing was unstable. Why did these professional investors put their reputations and money on the line? in this kind of a project, in your view, based on how you've described it. Yeah, maybe I'll say something about the institutional guys first, and, and I don't want to like uh, cast aspersions on them or impute their motive. Um, what I would say is that I would, I would imagine that there is a segment of them that were true believers in the project and thought that this would be world-changing. I think there's a segment of them that saw this as a quick grift to make easy money, and I think there's a segment of them that thought that this was positive EV even if the chances of success were low. Right, because the upside was so great. So even if there was only 10% chance of success, maybe then it would be at like a thousand X or a million X. Like the A16C, uh, if you've invested in Facebook and only one Facebook, yeah, some, some, something like that. Yeah. It goes up. So I think the the base of investors is mixed between those three categories, and you know I'm not going to say which one I think belongs to what category, but I think there were there were all three in that collection of of investors, and I think um, on the retail side, uh, you know, I just want to say something about that, which is that I think it's very unfortunate that there was so much heavy marketing that was done, uh, you know, both by the investors of the project and by you know TFL Terraform Labs themselves, uh, and basically uh, you know within the community themselves, evangelizing themselves um, about how oh. UST is supposed to be a stable coin, you know, it's safe, you can get guaranteed 20% interest doing this thing. I mean, generally the idea is that if it's too good to be true, you should really consider whether or not you know, this is this is actually real, um, and especially in a bear market. You know, I think you can get away with a lot more nonsense in a bull market, but I think in a bear market, things really come down to earth. Um, so, you know, I think you know overall for us as an industry, and I think in my opinion, what would be best for the industry um, as we move forward is that um, in order for us to really not have overbearing regulation from external regulators coming in and clamping down on us and you know stifling innovation, um, I think it's important for us to do two things. I think the first thing is that we need to police ourselves better. So I think. You know, generally, when we see that there are certain projects out there that might be grifts, that we should say that and we should call that out. And you know, even though I think initially it is hard because sometimes you know you face all of like at least for us, you know, the lunatics, you know, were just like ragging on us and flaming us on Twitter before the fact. Um, you know, I think it, it goes a long way um, to you know do a little bit of public service. If everybody just did it once, I think um, I think that would go a long way. And then I think the second thing is that we need to take personal responsibility um, for our own actions. You know, as much as I do think that there was some fault on the part of like TFL and maybe some of the investors uh, in the protocol, I think ultimately, as long as we can reflect on ourselves and say, 
well, maybe we were too greedy, uh, and maybe that's why you know, I lost money doing these sorts of things. If we can take personal responsibility for our actions, then I think that'll go also go a long way uh, in, in being you know, a self-regulatory space uh, and not have the regulators come in to save us from ourselves, uh, so to speak. So that, would, I think, would be more of the ideal outcome and, and sort of my own personal beliefs and leanings. Yeah. yeah, so to catch people up who are just getting here, I saw a bunch of people walk in. We're talking about Terra, um, the $40 billion stablecoin ecosystem that collapsed. We kind of talked about how they had this weird incentive structure that was not stable, that you know had people locking up these tokens um, that you know the, the the platform would not have been able to pay for in the long term. There's a lot of dip, you know other things that we've touched on. Um, we don't think um, in, in your view that it was like a, a stable model from the get go. But um, another thing that I, I want to touch on with you, and we talked about this a little bit earlier today, is what does this say about DeFi writ large? Is this an isolated incident? We know it's not. But, you know, what was different about this project and what is more endemic to the entire culture of DeFi, like SBF talks about, mm -hmm. locking things in a black box on Bloomberg? Yeah. You know, you were on that podcast a little later, too. I, I was, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think what I would say is that I would, I would broadly group DeFi into, like, two categories. I think the first is, you know, I, I know Robert was on, uh, like, you know, things like Compound, like these products that kind of just make sense, right? Which is that, you know, people have dormant capital, they want to get yield on it, and they can lend it to other people who have productive uses for it, right? So uh, never before has coordination for that been as easy as in crypto, right? So that, that business model just kind of makes sense, right? You know where the yield is coming from because people are paying for it, right? Other people with the um, ability to use that money are paying for it. Um, now, there's a different category of DeFi, and there's a lot of DeFi projects in that category. I would just want to say it. I don't think, you know, everything in DeFi is terrible. I mean, I think there's a lot of great projects. Um, but there's another category, which is, um, the, you know, a lot of these kinds of grifts and these kinds of what I, what I call money games, right? Um, and basically, uh, the product is uh, the money itself, right? And um, it's like a game, uh, you know, it's like kind of like a meta game where it's sort of like, it's like a giant chicken game. Everybody puts, everybody puts their money in, and then you know everybody makes a little bit of money, and then like you want to pull your money before everything blows up, and then like last money gets wrecked, right? Like I think for the most part, I don't think those things should be banned per se. I think in the same sense that you know in America, you know you can eat cheeseburgers; they're bad for you, but you know nobody bans cheeseburgers. I mean, casinos are legal. Um, you know, in, in some ways. I do think they're a little bit predatory, um, but you know, like uh, you know, cigarettes, for example, um, you know, that pe if people want to smoke cigarettes, they can smoke cigarettes, right? So I think, I think overall, I, I don't think we should try and prevent people from wasting their own money, even though I think it's a bit of a waste. Um, I think maybe the fun they get out of it is is, is worth it. Um, but that being said, if your goal is not to spend money to enjoy yourself as if you know you're playing roulette or playing craps at a casino and I think you should be very clear about it um, then uh, you might not want to play those games and I think that's re that's really a takeaway like if you're okay with the fact that this might be a negative EV game and you're here to enjoy it in the same way that you might enjoy a roulette game or a craps game uh, then by all means um, but I think it's really important to have that distinguishing uh, be able to differentiate between these kinds of money games and actual projects where it's very clear where the yield comes from so that's sort of what my thought is. Gotcha. And the last thing that I wanted to talk about was, well, um, I, I also see the timers running out, um, but we, we made a, like a calendar switch. Are, are we still good to go 10 more? Yeah. So we've still got 10 more minutes. Um, so anyway, um, let's actually slow down a little bit and talk um, 
in a more expanded form about this next question, which is stable coins in general. Like we've talked about, stable coins are these tokens that are supposed to be pegged mm -hmm. to some stable asset. UST was supposed to be pegged to a dollar. We're all probably familiar with this whole thing. They went a certain, you know, they took a certain strategy. Can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of stable coins? And let, let's start there. What are the different kinds of stable coins? Then we'll dive into our thoughts on them. Uh, sure, yeah, that sounds good. So <clears throat> I think broadly there's uh, three categorizations uh, for stable coins. Uh, so first you have the simplest version, which is the centralized stable coin, uh, which basically there's some bank somewhere which holds actual dollars uh, in their in their accounts, uh, and uh, you know these these coins like Tether and USDC are issued one for one based on uh, the backing that's in this bank account. So these are like the the the, the tethered stable coins, the centralized stable coins. Um, you know, obviously uh, there's some risk there because you know obviously there's some like state capture risk if all of a sudden you know government says okay you got to freeze these accounts. Well, obviously wherever jurisdiction these two uh, companies are based, you know USDC being in America, Tether being wherever, you know, um, uh, then uh, they'll have to comply, right? Um, and, you know, there have been uh, times where USDT has frozen accounts, and I think Circle to a much lesser degree, uh, but they've also done that uh, too. So there's some centralization risk, and there's, uh, you know, you know uh, sort of regulatory capture risk there. Um, uh, you know, I think some people might say that's a good thing, some people might say that's a bad thing, uh, but those are some of the considerations. Uh, there's also um, uh, collateralized stable coins, or over-collateralized stable coins. So if you look at, like, uh, the maker model, maker die, uh, that's uh, sort of like the the, the cleanest example of an over-collateralized stablecoin. You basically put some kind of asset in a vault, and uh, based on its value, you can take out less of that uh, or equivalent amount in some kind of stablecoin. And then if the price of the underlying that you posted as collateral fluctuates too much against you, then you know, your uh, contract gets liquidated uh, and uh, you know, the, the protocol is made, made, uh, made whole uh, in that way. Or, uh, or, lend or lenders are made whole in that way. Um, so this is, you know, basically just like collateralized debt. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, um, you know, basically debt-based protocol. I mean, it's, it's, it's mostly fine. I would say there are some extreme risks under, you know, like four sigma, five sigma events. If there's like huge gaps in the price, the protocol could be insolvent. Uh, but they have like some backstop mechanisms there. Um, there's some endogenous backstop mechanisms. Um, I, I think there's, there's going to be some risk there. Still a lot better than what I think about the third class of stable coins, which are the pure algorithmic stable coins. And these are basically coins which are built on you know complete uh, flywheel effects, and like, they're kind of like the they're perpetual motion machines and Rube Goldberg machines of crypto. Um, I think those um, just historically have always failed. I don't want I don't want to say that it's not possible, um, but it doesn't seem like it's possible. And that's that's where uh, you know I'll leave it. You know I, I think you, it's always hard to the line because you know on, on one hand you never want to be the guy that says uh, oh you know airplanes are never are not possible people will never fly and then some guy invents the airplane right uh, so you never want to be like anti-innovation but at the same time you also don't want to be the guy that says oh yeah you know I'm gonna build a perpetual motion machine you know because like that like by definition is just not possible right so I tend to think of these algo stable coins more in the second camp I do think that they're more like perpetual motion machines uh, but you know I would be willing to have my mind changed if you know I saw a design that actually did work you did um, short the perpetual motion machine so I guess in a way you did say that it couldn't work in, in one specific case yeah um, so well that, that one worked out so we'll see I, um, extending on this a little bit um, I've noticed on Twitter a lot of these different 
platform, you know, you, you saw the crash of UST and now everybody's talking about, you know what, we're going to go for the over collateralized model. Everybody who would have, in my view, it, it seems like everybody who was going down more of like the Terra path, for example, Tron with their new stable coin, they're now trying to go this over collateralized path where we're going to collateralize things with, I don't know, a bunch of Bitcoin and there's going to be more Bitcoin in the bank than there are, you know, dollars in circ circulation. Is that a trend that you think is going to stick around? Like, why, like are, are we just going to see no more algo stables and all over collateralized stable coins? Like, where do you see things headed? Uh, no, I think that, uh, I think as of right now, I think everybody, you know, off the back of the collapse of Luna, they're doing more of this collateralized approach. Uh, but I think given enough time, people always gravitate back towards uh, algorithmic stable coins. I mean, this idea of being, al being able to alchemize value out of nothing, I mean, it's too tempting of an idea. And I think based on just human nature, we're going to keep repeating this experiment forever. And we're going to just keep failing at it over and over. And plenty of people are just going to keep losing money. So I think generally it takes about uh, two to three years for people to forget how badly they got burned the last time. Um, and then after that, we'll just retry the same experiments all over again. And you know, the funny thing is that, like, we've tried this experiment before with Luna, right? Because we had, like, Iron and Titan. And even before that, there was, like, the new bits design, right? It's, like, very early on in crypto, we had already tried, like, and all sorts of variants of this design, right? We had already tried this, you know? I mean, BitShares USD was the first one, too. So there, there, was, there was a lot of these uh, attempts at these algo stable coins, uh, all variations of basically the same idea, right? Um, so I think we're basically doomed to keep repeating the same mistake over and over. But what I, what I hope is that every time um, that we at least win people over to our side, that maybe some people become a little bit more sober and say, ah, maybe this is not worth pursuing, right? So I think maybe, you know, maybe the bubbles get smaller over time, uh, maybe, you know, eventually, uh, you know, just get smaller and smaller and then, you know, doesn't, and then maybe crypto itself outside of these kinds of designs gets big enough that it can take the, and absorb the shock of it, um, you know, in a relative proportion sense, uh, maybe the ratio gets better. And I think that's something that we can hope for. But I think, um, I don't think we can hope for that this never it gets tried again. I think it's just, it's too tempting of an idea, you know. So on the other side, you talked before about the different kinds of stable coins. There's also these dollar-backed, you know, centralized stable coins, the two main ones being USDC, um, USD coin um, run by Circle, yeah. and Tether. Um, Tether um, has come under a lot of scrutiny, as many of people in this room may know, from people who don't believe that they are fully backed. There's some people who think that because they've only released attestations, not full audits of their reserves, they, you know, have X tether in circulation, but in reality, if people tried to cash out, if the numbers got low enough, they wouldn't have any more tether or real dollars in the bank to actually allow people to cash out. They basically have less in their reserves in this, you know, um, by some people's investigating and opinions. Anyway, you have a different opinion. Um, can you talk a little bit about tether and that side of things? Yeah, so um, I think, uh, I think to, to qualify the, the things I'm going to say next, I just want to say that um, overall I do think the credit worthiness of USDC is higher uh, than Tether, uh, but I think both are generally okay. Now, I might eat my words at some point you know, when, when it implodes, but um, that's, my, that's my thought right now. And I think really, like if you look at the history of Tether, uh, they did a whole bunch of really shady things, but if you think about some of the things that they did, right, like they backed um, you know, their, their vault of uh, you know, coins with like Chinese commercial paper. Okay. 
it was kind of dumb, but it wasn't like that bad. You know, it didn't end up being that bad. Um, you know, they, they, they bought Bitcoin with what should have been dollars in the bank, uh, but Bitcoin went up over that period of time. So they did something they shouldn't have done, but um, so, you know, it kind of worked out for them. They actually should have extra money. They should have even more money and, and actually be more than overly solvent, right? Um, they had the whole thing with uh, crypto capital where there was like a giant like $800 million hole uh, that they plugged on uh, Bitfinex's balance sheet uh, and then they took on Bitfinex's bad debt. That's a centralized um, exchange that they, or decentralized, well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all owned by iFinex, so the holding company yeah. is iFinex and it owns both Tether and, and Bitfinex. Um, so, you know, th then they plugged that hole um, by, you know, issuing the Leo token. So then, then uh, you know, they were able to transfer back that 800 mil uh, and, and make it make it whole again. So they somehow are continuously able to get themselves into trouble, do crazy things. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, um, the estimate is that, in my opinion, that they actually are solvent. So they need to stop doing this crazy shit, um, but I do think they're actually solvent. So that's, that's my opinion about them. Um, and, and maybe just one last thing I wanna say is that um, the real centralization risk, I think, of UST, uh, USDT and um, uh, USDC isn't really about, you know, the, the ability to redeem or their solvency. In my opinion, it's about the control that they have over chains. So like, you know, if Ethereum were to ever fork for whatever reason, um, basically Circle gets to decide which chain is true, right? Because there's, you can't duplicate money in a vault somewhere, right? You can't turn like 20 billion into 40 billion. So they're only gonna honor redemptions from one of the Ethereum chains. And that gives them um, a lot of uh, negotiating power and a lot of influence onto uh, basically uh, you know, the, the future of a lot of these um, chains which hold their coin, right? So any, any chain which has USDC or USDT on it um, in some ways can be captured by Circle and by Tether. And I think that's a, a much bigger centralization risk than whether or not they're solvent or not because the, the solvency only affects people who hold that token, right? But guiding the future of and deciding which fork is real affects everybody on the chain, right, if that makes sense. So I imagine, um, we, well, I know, I asked for a show of hands. We, we've got some investors in this room, people who have played around with DeFi. Maybe you've got a lot of money in DeFi. Um, one question that obviously a lot of this raises is how do I figure out what to trust? If I read the news, I might think that Tether is the same as UST, is the same as USDC, is the same as Olympus, is the, you know, I just see, and, and then on the other side, you'll have people who call everything quote unquote FUD, I hate that term, but they'll call it FUD and say, you know, everything's great. Um, what should I look out for if I'm an investor in this space in terms of green flags and red flags? Um, what I would say is, um, I think you should be aware of the risks and you should take smart and calculated risks, right? Like, no matter what stable coin you use, there's always gonna be a whole bunch of different risks, right? Like, let's, let's look at like Tether and USDC as an example. Like, they're both centralized stable coins, but there's some differences between them, right? Like, USDC is more subject to US regulatory control, so they have, you know, they're gonna have a lot more influence from US, the US government, so there's that extra risk. But USDT, you know, because they're not in the US, then, you know, they can also be a little bit more buck wild about things. So even though there's less like state capture risk, now you have all sorts of other kinds of misbehavior risks, right? So it's like, at the end of the day, like how do you value each one, right? And historically, like how have people performed? Um, I've always found that the Lindy test is always great for, for projects in the space, and just generally uh, in terms of just navigating uh, through different um, you know projects and asset classes and whatnot, and it's just like historically how have these guys behaved, and you know, oh, like what kind of people are they? You know, a lot of these folks have been in the industry for a long time, and you get to look 
their track record and you get to see how, you know, the things that they said in the past, you know, and you can see all the different projects they had done. And, you know, every new cycle, uh, bull and bear cycle brings in a lot of new people too. Some people stay for the long term and some people are very, you know, fair weather friends. So, but at least for the people who've stayed for a while, you know, everybody has like some kind of industry reputation and it is a, uh, it is a small industry and I think it is important to look at you know, those kinds of historical facts on top of doing fundamental research of the mechanics of what's actually going on. And I think careful study of the mechanics will teach you a lot um, about, you know, the workings of, you know, these kinds of stable coins. All right, our, our clock is doing weird things, but I think sadly we're, we're out of time. Um, I, I wanna thank you, Kevin, um, for, you know, shedding light on this, not only during this session, but in the lead up when it was very important um, to, to what happened last month. And yeah, um, I'll keep reaching out on questions for all these other protocols. Yeah, awesome, yeah, thanks for having me, appreciate yeah, it. Thanks. Yeah.